Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written three dozen cookbooks, including the Instant Air Fryer Bible. Ma, did you know that Bruce, on his own, has written two knitting mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. Boyfriend Sweaters and Knits Men Want? And I have written a memoir, you bookmarked, have. all about my life in books. All told, we are approaching our 40th title, which is unbelievable. And we're going to tell you more about the 40th title soon enough on this podcast. But this podcast is not about any of that. Instead, we're going to talk about oyster farming. Oh, my mm. gosh. What? We are so out there. Oyster farming. We're going to give you, <laughs> as oysters. is typical, our one-minute cooking tip. Bruce has an interview with Chuck Kwan, the author of Have You eaten yet and we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week so let's get started you know that oysters clean water right as they grow they filter filter. so they are the only form of farming that actually leaves the surrounding area cleaner than when they started which is really kind of nice, right? So when you farm oysters, you're not only providing really, really good food for people, because oysters are delicious, but you are cleaning the environment. So it seems like this should be a win-win. It seems, but here's the problem. That we have unfortunately toxified our oceans such that oysters now pick up great deals of poisonous chemicals and even rare earth elements. And this is the problem. The seabed is becoming increasingly polluted. Oysters as filter systems pick all that up. And the question is whether you should eat oysters. Well, the answer is going to be yes because of the advent of oyster farming. We're going to talk about how oysters are farmed and what the different styles of oyster farming mean for the area where they're farmed. But let's start with the basics. You grow plants from seeds, right? How do you grow oysters? Well, oysters have reproductive organs, and interestingly, (laughs) (laughs) they produce both sperm and eggs. I think that's kind of life, right? I mean, not plant life, but animal life has reproductive organs. Yeah, but not every animal can make sperm and eggs. So they can actually fertilize their own eggs. Well, all right then. (laughs) So I suppose that is an achievement in life. But, you know, what happens is farmers actually stimulate that spawning and that fertilization process by manipulating the temperature temperature and the food of mm-hmm. farmed oysters, and they can actually control the spawning and thus get more than the standard cycles without necessarily the introduction of any chemical yep. reproductive agents. And so you end up with giant tanks with millions of free-swimming larvae, which after a few weeks, they cement themselves to a platform that the farms create from ground-up shells, yep. and then these platforms get placed in the ocean ocean to grow. Now, how they're placed in the ocean and where they're placed in the ocean become very important in terms of the health of the oysters and the happiness of the people that live near these farms. Yeah, it's true. Now, we have friends who have a second home, a vacation home in on the Cape in Massachusetts. And they're on the bay side, not the ocean side of the Cape, if you know what that means to the Cape. But they're on the bay side. 
and they actually live not so far from a big oyster farm. And the rocks at their beach are covered with, as we call them, escapees. Because these things, you know, of course, get loose from where they've attached onto the farming poles that are made from the ground-up shells. And otherwise they get loose, they scatter down in the currents, and their beach is just low. <laughs> Loaded with oysters, and they're they're all farming escapees, is what it is. They are, and they are basically when our friends go out and harvest the oysters from their beach at low tide, they're just you know part of the bottom culture, which is is. bottom culture uses a natural sea floor as a base for oyster farms, and it often produces oysters with much stronger shells, but. These oysters are exposed to the elements, are exposed to predators, and yep. often not all of them survive. And there's a whole thing about bottom culture oysters, about whether, in fact, you're avoiding the problems of the toxicity mm-hmm. of the ocean floor. Now, some of these bottom culture farms, as I understand it, stand up a little bit off the muck of the floor. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're flat, they're horizontal, yep. but they are up a bit from the muck. But there's still a question of what settles down there it we're not going to solve that on this podcast i can tell you that there are people who complain about this and there are other people and not just bottom culture oyster farmers but actually scientists who say no 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 they're, they're if they're raised up out of the muck you're you're much better off so it's a, it's an ongoing question well the other alternative is off bottom culture where yeah. oysters are grown in a controlled environment like a bag or a net or a cage that floats in the open water yeah and this is you know cage culturing rack and bag tray yeah, culturing, tray culturing. Yeah. and Each method has its own advantages and disadvantages, but the main thing is that the oysters are up off the bottom, the water flows around them, over, above them, and that makes for both cleaner water and healthier oysters. A lot of people claim that off-bottom culture farmed oysters, and I will tell you that I haven't done enough testing on this, so I wouldn't wouldn't actually know. A lot of people will say that they're sweeter Mm. because the water is more active around them, the tide is coming in and out, and blah, 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 and they're milder flavored than bottom culture farmed oysters, but I don't know that to be the truth. But whether you choose oysters that were bottom cultured or floating in their cages and their nets, you have to know that when oysters are farmed, the waters around the farms are highly regulated, right? So oysters, each oyster can filter 50 gallons of water a day. It's a huge amount of water. But the water that they're in is highly regulated to make sure that water is clean because they will absorb pollutants, which is why... You know, every time our friends pick up those oysters off the beach and off of their rocks, I do worry about it a little bit because no one is monitoring their water, even though it's no. 10 miles down no. down the beach and from the oyster farms. I can tell you, we go to a place in Portland, Maine called The Shop, and it's fabulous for its oysters. I know everyone goes to Eventide when they go to Portland, Maine, but I can tell you, stay away from Eventide and go to The Shop. It is so much finer, and it's less expensive, and they have Prosecco on tap, so go. <laughs> Go to the shop. It's up on Munjoy Hill. But one of the things that I've noticed is that at the shop, they sell not only 
ocean oysters, but they sell Maine River oysters. And river oysters in Maine sometimes are in an environment where when the tide is low, the river is flowing out, mm-hmm. and so they're in fresh water. And then when the tide comes back in, I don't know if you know this, but in Maine, many of the rivers reverse direction as the tide comes in, and suddenly the oysters are back in salt water. So it's a what fresh like salmon. They water. spend some of their life in fresh <laughs> exactly. water, some of their life in seawater. And I can tell you that those oysters that are the river oysters mm-hmm. at, at the shop are strong. They are strongly <laughs> flavored. Yeah, I'm not I'm not fond of the super big flavored oysters, but mm. a lot of people are not happy with the oyster farms, even if they're off, especially if they're off bottom. And who are these people? These are the people with the views of the water from their expensive <laughs> always, beach houses. In IMB, not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. And these people are in the Hamptons, these people are in the expensive parts of Rhode Island, and they don't want to look out on their water and see the floats that indicate where the farms yeah, are, yeah, yeah. where the oysters are. And yeah, that's yeah. so they're suing oyster farms. And the thing is, these people want to eat oysters. Yeah. They just don't want to look out on their water and well, see the farms. I will say, it, Bruce knows this about me. I just absolutely love oysters, and I love them in almost all forms. I love oyster chowder, I love fried oysters, and more than anything, I love raw oysters. Mm. But, you know, my my dad, my now passed away father, introduced me to oysters on the half shell, as we called them back in the day. Oysters on the half shell when I was, oh gosh, an early teenager. We go to this seafood restaurant in Dallas, S&D, and it was just brilliant. The oysters were so good. Dad and I would always each get a dozen. I was like 13 years old and eating a dozen oysters. And it was so fabulous. And then my dad quit eating them. He got afraid of them. And he got afraid that of various bacterial infections. And it's Hepatitis. not... It's not unreal to be cautious. No. I still eat a lot of raw oysters, but I am super cautious. I don't really eat them at a place that I don't trust. And by that, I mean... Gas station oysters. No. And I'm not going <laughs> to... Yeah, I don't I don't eat them at many beach shacks, to be honest with you, because I don't know what... It looks like they're getting them from the water right behind them, but I know that that's not how food distribution networks work. I would rather eat a dozen oysters, raw oysters, at a restaurant with a really high-end chef who is watching his supply or her supply very carefully. It's just we never, ever eat raw oysters at home. No, I won't do that. No, you never go buy them. Even though I love them, we don't eat them at home. No, I let the chefs do it. I don't want to shuck them. I'll get shell in them. I'm not all that good at it. So, you know, and I trust restaurants with their turnover. In fact, there's a place, a little shout out to our friend Adam, who owns Cafe Adam in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And at least as of this recording, every Thursday night, he does two buck shucks. (laughs) Each oyster is only two bucks. And you can go and eat your fill of oysters there. And I always think about my friend Catherine, who lives in Austin, and she grew up in Baytown, Texas. And Texas isn't Texan like I am, but she grew up in Baytown. And we were out once with Catherine and her husband, and we were eating raw oysters. I think we were in Maine. And I remember this. This had to be 20 years ago, and I remember this as bright as daylight, that she sucked down an oyster. She put an oyster in her mouth. And instantly picked up her napkin and spit it back into the <laughs> napkin. And butt. she said, nope, not worth it. <laughs> and I I kind of remember looking at her like with this face. And she's like, nope, I can tell. She's like, growing up in Baytown, I can tell what's a good oyster and what's a bad oyster. And that one was not worth it. So 
I must admit that I'm not that finessed about oysters, but I do know once they start to get really strong, I, it takes me a moment to figure out that I want to eat that. But I do love, 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 love oysters in all their forms. I don't know that I would eat a Baytown oyster. I don't want oysters that go yeah. in warm water. Warm water oysters are different. No, ew. That's kind of like, no, that's just wrong. I mean, that's what Dad and I were eating at S&D mm-hmm. in Dallas is we were eating warm water Gulf oysters. And they are strong. They're meaty. They're big. Well, at least they used to be. They were big. They were strong. They were meaty. They were not for the faint of heart. My mother would just sit there silently staring at us, <laughs> not daring to eat one oyster. She claimed that once she put one oyster in her mouth, and that was the end of it. Now, I think my mom would eat a fried oyster, but I'm not even sure. I don't like them that. fried. I only like raw oysters. I don't yeah, like I them cooked at all. But you should just know that oysters are an incredibly well-farmed item. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that there aren't poor producers out there. Mm -hmm. There are, as in everything. But it is one of the crops that can stick around for a while as slowly all the crops are dying out. It is one of the ones that can stick around for a while. And eating oysters isn't necessarily the worst carbon footprint that you can put down on the globe. So, you know, hey— Consider oysters and consider farmed oysters mm-hmm. first and foremost. Keep demand up. That's all I could say. Keep demand up because they're good for you and they're really good for the planet. Before we get to the next segment of this podcast, let me tell you that, as I always do, we have a newsletter. You can find that newsletter by going to our website, Bruce and Mark. Just spell it all out, A-N-D-M-A-R-K, bruceandmark.com. There's a form there for signing up for the newsletter. I want to tell you that I have set it up so that I cannot see your name. I cannot sell your name. I don't even know who you are when you sign up. I just see a statistic that says eight people signed up for the newsletter this week, and that's what I see. So. It's really great if you want to do that, and you can always opt out at any time by clicking the link at the bottom of any newsletter and getting off the list. They come out every one to two weeks. Their recipes, their Bruce's knitting patterns, their cogitations on life, all kinds of weird things that happen inside of that newsletter, and we'd love it if you could subscribe, so check it out. So up next, as is traditional, our one-minute cooking tip. Toast your nuts. Toasted Stop. nuts have more flavor Stop. than untoasted Stop. nuts. I, okay. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Pistachios, pecans, you walnuts, know, I, cashews. I want to tell you that I was really good, and I passed up a thousand times to comment on <laughs> bottom culture. So I I want to tell you that I got out of that, and now you're asking me to get toast out of your nuts. toast your nuts. Okay. Toast your nuts. I'm just going to sit here. And put them in salads before you grind them up to put them in cakes. But here's the thing. Toast your nuts in the oven. Don't toast them in a skillet. They don't brown evenly. Yeah. You get burn bits. You have to shake them. Put them in the oven, 350 degrees, and a single layer on a sheet pan, and let them go. Check them at five minutes. Check them at seven minutes. As soon as they're lightly brown and smelling good, you're done. Yeah, I will tell you that toasting nuts in an oven is a much better solution. You don't end up with those bitter brown black mm-hmm. spots on the nuts, if you watch them starting at about the fourth to fifth minute mm-hmm. and then forward, you do have to not step out of the kitchen. Up next, Bruce's interview with Chuck Kwan, the author of the brand new book, Have You Eaten Yet? Stories from Chinese Restaurants. Today, I'm speaking with Chuck Kwan. 
He's the author of the new book, Have You Eaten Yet? Stories from Chinese Restaurants Around the World. Chuck visited Chinese restaurants on five continents, including stops in Madagascar and above the Arctic Circle in Norway. And through stories of the people he met, his book focuses on how food is at the center of the diasporic Chinese identity. Welcome, Chuck. Thank you. Conversations about the Chinese diaspora often lead to discussions about adaptation, ingenuity, and resilience. Why did you decide to approach it through the lens of food? Well, it's ubiquitous that you will see Chinese restaurants everywhere. I, I see them in small towns, North America. I see them in massive population. And because food has always been associated by the Chinese people as sort of health and well-being. And the title of my book is Have You Eaten Yet?, which is a colloquial kind of greeting. People see each other in Chinatowns and asking about, basically asking, how are you? Perhaps this is because in the ancient times, China always had that famine and poverty and war. People may not have enough to eat. So asking if anybody's stomach is full, it's akin to asking, you know, how are you or how are you well? So I thought that, you know, food would be the the one very interesting angle to approach the story of diaspora. There are Chinese restaurants everywhere one goes. And I've heard you say in other interviews that more than any ethnic group, Chinese immigrants gain a toehold in a new land through their cuisine. Do you think that comes from the Chinese culture or is that coming from the acceptance in the land and the places that the Chinese people are coming to? I think both, but certainly I, I believe that Chinese immigrants have always been more, I would say, more adaptive to this environment. And that's because of survival. And the fact that only one of my 15 Chinese restaurant owners have any training hmm. as a chef. The rest of the people were perhaps engineers, farmers, you know, coming from different backgrounds. And it just so happens that you can make Chinese food easily without speaking the language. You can serve your customers. You can have your kids be the front of the house. And, and but you can hide in, inside the kitchen and, and do your thing without having to speak the language. So it is, in a sense, overcoming the barrier of assimilation and, and being accepted into society. And what better you know, ambassador is food uh, in terms of, you know, getting acceptance. Well, food in China varies greatly from region to region, but is there a thread that ties it together? And if so, do you see that common thread throughout the world where Chinese food is being served? In a sense, yes. I, but I have to caution you, you know, when you use the word term Chinese food, it, it basically represents about 56 ethnic minorities groups in, in China, anywhere from Tibetans to Mongolians to Uyghur Muslim food. However, the, the kind of food that, as we know in North America and probably around the world, Cantonese food. And Cantonese is famous for using the wok, using fresh ingredients. And with the wok and the spatula, you can pretty much create anything you want. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that sort of points to the adaptability of Cantonese food in the early days in, in, in North America. Now, how, however, of course, you know, in, in the late last two or three decades, you'll see the introduction of more quote-unquote exotic, you know, Sichuan food, Hunan food, 
Shanghai food. But in, in general, they all have that kind of very flexible, unlike the French, you know, where everything has to be classical and cuisine and approved by Paul Bocuse or anybody else. <laughs> Chinese food is uh, it's like a mass popular thing where everybody who can, you know, get their hands on walk and, and cook something for their customers. And if the customers like it, hey, you know, why not? So I think I think that it has the common people denominator kind of dimension to to Chinese food. Let's continue that idea of authenticity. I mm -hmm. mean, is there really anything such as authentic Chinese food even inside China, more or less outside China? I get asked this question quite a bit, and I would say, you know, authenticity is a loaded word. Mm. <laughs> I define authenticity as something that you grow up with basically that, you know, like the Italian grandmother spaghetti sauce, mm -hmm. you know, you would say, wow, you know, that's what I grew up with. And this is authentic to where I come from. Mm -hmm. I think you can say that very easily and people certainly would accept that, yeah. but I would not use the word authenticity to describe Chinese food in general. I mean, one person's authenticity is another person's impersonation. <laughs> Hence, using that argument, I would say, you know, Chinese-American food is authentic to a Chinese-American who grew up here. Chop suey is by itself not a bad dish, mm -hmm. as everybody makes it out to be. And egg rolls and, you know, sweet and sour chicken balls. If I was growing up in a small town in America, I, I would say, well, hey, that's authentic because that's the kind of Chinese food that I've been using. I'll tell you a story in, in Toronto, there's a big Hakka population. Mm -hmm. Hakka people came from India. And so they opened the Indo Hakka restaurants here, serving the kind of food that they make in Calcutta, which is half a blend of uh, Chinese ingredients with uh, Indian spices. Mm. And then the clientele are all Indian and Pakistani taxi drivers. And, you know, you ask why? Well, that's because that's the Chinese food they're used to back in Mumbai, back in Calcutta. Mm -hmm. So when they come to Toronto, they want their home version of Chinese food. Hence, you know, to them, that's the authentic Chinese food. Having eaten all over the world, what's the most interesting place where you found Chinese people serving up, and I just use the words in quotes, Chinese food? I would say Madagascar. I've never been there before I write my book. And I didn't even know there were Chinese in Madagascar until somebody pointed out, hey, you might, you might try to go there. So I, I landed in Madagascar not knowing anything. And then I was served a bowl of wonton soup. Basically, my friend says, this is our national dish. And basically, uh, just down home, wonton soup. But it's taken over. <laughs> it's taken over the, the cuisine. And I equate this with kind of how the Brits will call, you know, chicken tikka masala as their national food. Right. You know, it, it just shows you the truth can travel everywhere. So Madagascar to me was a country, not just because I've never been there, but I, I also never thought there were Chinese settlement. But in fact, there have been immigrants who were there for five, six generations. So, and they are all racially very mixed mm. into the local population. So that's, to me, is an eye-opening country for me. So in Madagascar, you found wonton soup that has taken over as a national soup. In Canada, you have Indo-Chinese food that is being imported sort of in its current state, but is there any place in your travels where you found a true fusion of the local culture 
and Chinese food? I would say in Peru. Peruvians have this cuisine called chifa, which, by the way, is based on Chinese word, means to eat rice. And it is a very, very unique blend. You know, you can't really call it Chinese and you can't really call it Peruvian, but then it is the national cuisine of, of Peru in a sense. So there, I would say it's, it's a, a very, very fusion. But I would hesitate to use the word fusion. I would use just say hybrid. You know, fusion means you, you're completely melting one another. You, you, you can still distinguish parts of it that is Inca or Spanish, you know, Peruvian, but of course, Many parts of it are Chinese in origin, like fried rice and fried noodles. Can you give me an example or two of the dishes that the family you visited was serving in their restaurant that inhabit this idea of hybrid Peruvian Chinese food? There is a dish called chicharron, which in norm and different Latin American countries use the word chicharron differently. In Peru, chicharron is almost like a barbecue roast pork that you find in Chinatown. In North America, it's their version, the way they cooked it and so forth. And it's also pretty much like a national dish, mm. but it, it actually, you know, the origin is, of it is using soy sauce and everything else is basically Chinese. So there's an example of, of kind of the, you would call it total fusion of, of Chinese and Peruvian cuisine. Jack, tell me about your experience with Chinese restaurants in Israel, it wasn't very easy to find anything that was reminiscent to you at first of anything you knew, was it? No, it wasn't bad. I mean, it's just not to me. It, I, I was looking for Chinese restaurant owners because I want to tell their stories in yep. my in my film and in my book. But everywhere I turned, the, the restaurants were, were run by Israelis maybe with a Thai cook. So you have Tong Yam Kung in your, in your menu because the cook is from Thailand. And then you might have a Malaysian, you know, servers. So I, I couldn't find anything for a long time. And then suddenly I ran in Haifa, I ran into a, a Chinese restaurant. The, the outside sign has proper Chinese characters, handwritten <laughs> Chinese characters yeah, yeah. saying Happy New Year. And then I, I said, okay, this might be a good one. So I, I I just walked into the restaurant and the restaurant owner is Chinese from Vietnam. He was actually a boat people. He fled Vietnam, but got accepted by Israel as one of the 400 at that time, 400 Chinese immigrants coming into Israel. And then of course I found my restaurant owner and he does make a very, very good Chinese food. But of course, you know, he has to cater to Israeli taste. So his restaurant is basically, you know, halal and no pork and no alcohol and so forth. But so basically he has a Chinese restaurant that is basically very Israeli, but then the food I tasted are fairly authentic. The people you met in your travels and you write about are just fascinating. I love your storytelling. You've eaten all over the globe. Can you have some advice for travelers who are looking for great food that's off the beaten path and also maybe even off the menu? Be adventurous. And, uh, you know, you never know what you got. I, I in, in South Africa, I had a dish called ostrich meat in black bean sauce. It, it's like beef. It's mm -hmm. not, it's red meat, actually. Yep. I thought, I didn't think ostrich meat would be red meat, but it is. <laughs> and done that up, it's no different from a beef with black bean sauce. So you never know what you're going to get, but certainly, you know, if you got turned off by 
ostrich, then you, you certainly won't have the experience that I had right. of trying something new and adventurous. And the other advice I would say is if you go to a, a fairly quote unquote authentic Chinese restaurant, look at what the other Chinese are eating. Don't be shy about asking the restaurant owners if they say, hey, can I have something off the menu? Mm -hmm. Because that's what I do. When I travel, I, I, I run around and I, I would poke my head into the kitchen and say, can you make me something quote unquote authentic? Announcing that to them that I'm an overseas Chinese. I want my real Chinese food. Yeah. So don't serve me anything on the menu. When you would do that, would you ask this question in Chinese or the language of the place you were in? I can detect. Okay. Uh, I can. I'm, I'm pretty good at detecting where people are coming from. And of course, even if it's in Chinese, there are different dialects. True. So you have to kind of, you know, know that you hit the right dialect. But certainly, I think showing my face and just announcing them in yeah. whatever language that I am a also an overseas Chinese, I am a part of the member of the Chinese diaspora, that gets me welcome everywhere. And do you have a favorite dish? And if you do, does that dish differ? From country to country that you've traveled in? My favorite dish is pork belly, braised pork belly. There are different styles of pork belly, but certainly the Hakka pork belly is the kind of the standard bearer. Actually, surprisingly, I found this wonderful pork belly in, in Mumbai, India, in Mauritius, and in Peru. And in each of those places, were they preparing the pork belly with the preserved mustard greens with the exactly. making kai? So they were able to find those ingredients and, and offer that up even in other around the world. That's right. Hey, you know your you know your pork bellies. <laughs> I do know my pork belly. It is also one of my favorite dishes to make and to eat. Oh man, Chuck Kwan, this has been so much fun talking about your travels and your experiences with Chinese food. Your book, Have You Eaten Yet? Stories from Chinese restaurants around the world is your experience, your conversations with these Chinese restaurant owners around the world, what they went through, how they have assimilated into communities, how Chinese food is the link that joins so many people around the world. Thank you for spending some time with me this morning and thank you for this amazing book. Thank you for having me. I think probably when we travel, we eat at more Chinese restaurants than we eat at any other kind of restaurant. It is fascinating how the Chinese diaspora is so focused on food and mm. that, you mm. know, that is such a way to gain a toehold into new cultures. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, and it, it is a great way to experience a different kind of cuisine than you maybe mm -hmm. experience if you travel. And, you know, it's great, the Chinatown, to, to support Chinatowns, they were heavy, hard hit during the pandemic because of kind of racist sentiment. Mm -hmm. They were very hard hit. So it's great to support them. Grace Young is doing a Hulian job supporting Chinatowns right now with her work. And then shout out to her for doing that. And it, it, I don't know. We eat a lot of Chinese food. We I'll do. Now I also about. make a lot of Chinese food. We, but... You do. All right. Before we get to our last segment, as is usual, let me say it would be great if you could subscribe to or rate this podcast on any platform. You can rate it by giving it stars. <laughs> Five stars are best. Thank you. And if you want to drop down on the Apple platform or Audible, you can simply leave a comment that says something like great podcast. Just that 
easy little bit will do wonders for our unsupported podcast that is otherwise just here because you're here. So shout out to us and we're <laughs> shouting out to you right now. Our final segment, as is traditional, what's making us happy in food this week? Casamara Club adult sodas. They are non-alcoholic. Have we herb. done this? We have. We've actually talked about them as a main focus of the podcast when we did mm-hmm. non-alcoholic drinks. And these are really good. They're, they're they seltzers are. that are infused with herbs and spices, and they're not very sweet. Nope. And what I've decided I'd like best is mixing a little alcohol into them. <laughs> and so I take the that one. defeats the purpose. No, it doesn't because it's a beautiful base. And I just pour a little Aperol into the one that is an orange base. And oh my goodness, it's so delicious. Yeah, the, the Amaro one is my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's very sophisticated. It's very adult. It's a little bitter. It's got no alcohol in it. And I am and like 14 calories a can. I know. I am really into it lately. And I think it's just kind of a brilliant alternative to not necessarily drinking all the time. And I'm not being a prude. I, Bruce and I just had a dinner party. And let me just say that I. As we used to say back in the day, tied one on such that the next day I was basically worthless till about one in the afternoon. So let me just say that I'm not being a prude about these things, but it is nice to dump the alcohol from your life and not always have it present at every turn. Oh, what's making me happy in food this week? is actually a coconut custard pie. Mm, We just had that dinner party where I said I tied one on, and Bruce made a four-bone prime rib, standing rib roast. It was crazy. Twelve pounds of rib roast. We had a bunch of people over. We played bridge, and then Bruce yanked out this giant rib roast out of the oven. It was delicious. He made a potato gratin. But at the end of the dinner, I made dessert, and I made a coconut custard pie. And... It is such a beautiful custard, eggy pie. Mm-hmm. The recipe is in our cookbook, The Ultimate Cookbook, which we published years ago. That book we, at the time, thought was going to be the absolute defining moment of our career. It ended not, up not being so. But it is a 900-recipe cookbook of everything from soup to nuts to four different kinds of lasagnas and all that stuff. Anyway, there's a recipe in there for coconut custard pie, and it is so delicious. If you like egg custards, it's yeah. just basically an oh, egg custard gosh, pie with so, lots of coconut. That was so delicious. I was like, I, I had to send everybody home with it because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise I would have eaten the entire thing. We did. We had we, we, we told them either to take it or it had to go out in the trash because otherwise I would just eat it down with apparently another bottle of red wine that night. So <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks for being with us on our podcast this week. Thanks for taking part on this journey with us. We appreciate that you're here and we appreciate that in a very crowded world of podcasts you have chosen to stick it out with us. And we hope you will come back and download another episode next week and the week after and the week after that so you won't miss a single episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.